All right, so hopefully you have your Bibles and you are prepared to open them up. We are going to be in James chapter 4 this morning. I want you to realize that in stark contrast with the closing words of chapter 3, where James says, "...and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace." Chapter 4 opens up addressing strife and conflict. In fact, the appearance of conflict among uh, the fellow believers stirs James to intense indignation. The severity of his words in this section is marked by the absence of his words, my brothers. Up to this point, uh, James has said at least on six different occasions, and he refers to them, as my brothers. Uh, Now, we don't find that in in this section. In fact, we find stronger terms for him to use, such as uh, you adulterous people or you double-minded. And so, uh, James is uh, addressing and he's attacking and he's trying to correct very forcefully. Notice what he says in verse number one. He asks the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, the literal meaning of this phrase is actually what causes wars and fights from among you, which I think uh, the the word wars is is a better word to use because it conveys the raw realities of the situation in which James is trying to address. He asks a very passionate rhetorical question, what causes wars and what causes fights among you? And he answers it with the second rhetorical question, which takes us to the subject here. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The obvious answer to the question is, yeah, absolutely, of course it is. And notice the source of the conflict. He says, is it not this, your passions are at war within you? So the source of conflict is that word passions. In fact, it's the Greek word from which we get our English word hedonism. That's, that's, that's the word that's being translated from. Hedonism, uh, for those that don't know, is, is, the, is the chief end of life. It's the all-out pursuit of all things pleasurable to a person. Hedonism is not talking about simply in enjoyment of life, but rather it's the all-out pursuit for immediate pleasures, and this all-out pursuit ultimately enslaves and separates us from God. And so James is saying, don't your fights come from your desire for personal pleasures that battle within you? So James is pointing out that the external fights that the people were caught up in were results of an internal battle that was waging war within their being. In verse 2 he says, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, now the first part of this verse is quite shocking. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. I mean, that, that's, I mean that's, that's pretty direct. It's pretty shocking. It's so shocking that some people have attempted to try to minimize what James is saying here. 
some theologians tried to say, well, what we have here is just an error in translation. Or others would say uh, that he's just he's claiming something metaphorically, not literally. So the question is, were James's readers actually allowing their desires to lead them to actually committing murder? Quite frankly, we don't know. Not really sure. But let me ask you this: Can frustrated desires lead one to commit murder? I read in Genesis chapter 4, uh, you see it's the case for Cain and Abel. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, it's the case for David and Uriah. So, so fighting and, and killing are the la- logical outcome for envy that's not reined in. But the worldly wisdom would say that if there's somebody that's standing in your way of your pursuit of all things pleasurable, then worldly wisdom would say you just need to eliminate the obstacle that's in front of you. And so, were James's readers and listeners guilty of actually committing murder? We don't know. But maybe they hadn't committed literal murder but, but maybe in their pursuit of things that were pleasurable for themselves, perhaps they may have slandered their brother or sister in Christ. Perhaps they might have even hated their brother and sister in Christ. To which Jesus would say that's just as wrong as murder. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, He says that you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brothers will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And James chapter 4 just oozes with frustration and disappointment for those that seek the empty pursuit of, of pleasure. Ultimately, he's saying like you desire or you literally lust for something and because you can't get it, then you kill. Or, or you covet, which would literally be you, you, you jealously strive for something and you cannot obtain it, so you fight and you quarrel. And the great irony is that we serve a God who gives generously good and perfect gifts. In, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you... If his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If then you, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those that ask him? And so James summarizes that simply by saying, you don't have because you don't ask. So we don't have our desires met because we do not trust and depend upon God to meet those desires. And there's nothing wrong with the basic desires of life. 
They're to be met. But they're to be met by us trusting and acknowledging God. They're to be met by us depending upon God as the source of all good and perfect gifts in our lives. And if we begin to ignore God, if we neglect God or deny God, then our desires will begin to run out of control. It's when we, we shove God aside that we begin to desire things to the point that we're willing to steal, to lie, to cheat, to fight, or perhaps even kill in order to obtain it. And the Bible's clear that the driving pleasure in life is something that would ultimately render your prayer life ineffective in verse number two it is it says you do not have because you do not ask and then in verse number three it says you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions so when they actually asked god they were asking god with wrong motives they were like the the prodigal son they wanted to spend their father's gifts on only themselves you got to understand that such self-focused prayers are the opposite of, of the way Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 11 that we should be praying for our daily bread. Verse number 33, he tells us that we should be praying, that we should be seeking after first the kingdom of God. And later, when we get to chapter 5 of James, James is going to tell us that prayer is powerful and effective, but only for the righteous. Only for those who seek God's will instead of their own personal pleasure. Let me put it this way. To use God in order to try to obtain what it is that we want without respect to what He wants for us in life, that is an idolatrous form of praying. Our God is not to be treated as though He's some genie in a bottle here to grant our wishes whenever we have one. And quite frankly, I think if we're honest, most of our prayer lives probably look as though we treat Him like He's some magical genie here to uh, give us our, our wish at, at our command. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus warned against praying to God in this manner. And he says that your Father knows what you need even before you ask of Him. So, so prayer is not magical, nor should it be mechanical. Uh, when one prays for what brings pleasure in their lives without regard to the will of God, then that's problematic. And that prayer uh, is wrong, and that prayer shouldn't expect to be answered. The key to praying, in case you don't realize, is praying in accordance to the will of God. That His will be accomplished in and through the request that you make mention of. And so we take all of our concerns, all of our burdens, and we present it to Him, and then we trust Him that He's going to take care of those things in accordance to His will in a manner in which that He receives the ultimate glory through the process. I want you to listen to the harshness of James' words in, in verse number 4. He says, You adulterous people, 
do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Man, James comes directly at him now. He's not calling them my brothers. Now he's saying, you adulterous people. Let's, look at your translation here. How many of your translation says adulterous people? Raise your hand. Okay, cool. Put them down. How many of your translation says adulterer? You adulterer. A few. Any of yours says uh, adulteresses? The female form. Okay, a couple. Any of yours says you adulterers or and adulteresses? Has both of them. One, two. And who doesn't even have their Bible this morning? Thank you. At least you're honest. Okay, here, this is, this is important, right? The, the actual word that's being translated should be, in English, adulteresses. James uses the, the feminine form of the word to describe the one who commits adultery. And that is extremely significant. Because he's reflecting uh, the, the Old Testament metaphor of Israel as being the bride of the Lord. And if you want to write some of these references down, I'll try to go slow for you. But, but the, the, the metaphor that he's trying to uh, capitalize on here are found in places like Isaiah chapter 54, verses 5 through 8. Or Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, the prophets often condemned Israel as an adulteress because of their unfaithfulness uh, to the holy God because of their pursuit of worshiping false gods. And, and you can read about that in places like Isaiah chapter 57, verses 3 through 9, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 10, Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 32 through 42. Or Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, or chapter 9, verse 1. Now, in the New Testament, the church is often called the bride of Christ. Did you know that? I hope that you did. It's, it's very important. You'll find that in places like 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 2, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. You'll see it in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. Or Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, and verse 9. So, he's drawing from the Old Testament illustration of Israel being uh, the bride of the Lord in the New Testament teaching that the church is the bride of Christ. Now James extends the metaphor for the church as a whole to now the individual believer. And so James is saying each believer is to God as a wife is to the husband. So these Christians, like Israel of old, had broken their vows of exclusive allegiance to God in order to chase after their own selfish pleasures. So therefore, they have become unfaithful to Christ. In James earlier, he summarized the law by mentioning two commandments. If you look back in James chapter 2, verse number 11, he says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. 
If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, then you become a transgressor of the law. Now, that's what he says as a summary statement in chapter 2, verse number 11. Now, in chapter 4, already in verse number 1 and in verse number 4, he accuses them of both being a murderer and an adulterer. So, so here's the thing. We are to know, we are to believe, we are to understand Jesus Christ just as we're to know, believe, or understand our spouse. And I think a lot of times we put more emphasis in the knowing of our spouse than we do in the knowing of our Lord. Or am I the only one? I mean, my wife and I, we just celebrated this past Thursday our 27th wedding anniversary. So I'm thinking... Some of you think, wow, she's put up with him for 27 years. 27 years, it's all good. 27 years. And I am amazed at how God has blessed me with such a wonderful woman in my life. Now, don't take this personal, but she's my very best friend. And I didn't, if I didn't have another friend in my life, I'd be all good because I got my wife beside me. And so for 27 years, we've gone through this journey together, and she's put up with a lot. Dragged her overseas to live in Germany. We've lived in seminary housing, served in Louisiana, throughout Texas, Kansas, now home. So for 27 years, what are we going to do for our anniversary? What, what, what do you want to do? So this is like a real stretch for us. Uh, she's like, ah, you know, I kind of, I kind of want to uh, tour a vineyard. I want, I want to, I want to experience that and, and see that. And so this is completely foreign to us. My wife and I, ni- ni- neither one of us drink alcohol of any kind ever. We just don't. And so we found this place that's that's local, uh, Parisos, uh, and. Uh, I was fascinated by the name of this place because it's named after a Greek word that's used in Ephesians chapter 2, and it means exceedingly good or abundantly good. And so I was like, "Mm, maybe these are believers and stuff. And so made an appointment for our anniversary. We're going to go out and do the whole tour of the place and unfortunately including a wine tasting. You should see my wife and I as we go through this process. One of all, First of all, I'm like, why can't they just put a little splash in that cup? They don't need to, like, pour, like, so much. And I was like, a little, little sip, I'm good. I took that first little sip, and I'm like, how do you people drink this stuff? <laughs> I don't even get it. And they're like, you know, there should be a hint of, uh, I don't know, apricot, a hint of something else. I'm like, okay, I guess it's there. And then we're going out. I was more interested in the whole process. And it was really cool learning about the process. And like I was really impressed and how he, t- he tied it into biblical teaching and all this other stuff. I mean, that part was awesome. But all I could keep on thinking is the guy that's giving us a tour is carrying this bag around. And it had like six bottles inside of it. And we just had the first sampling. I was like, oh, we've got to do like five more of these tastings. And, and I'm like, I don't really understand the difference between the taste at all. I don't get anything and if they tell me that this one should have an oaky you know taste to it I'm like I don't know why that's good I don't eat wood (laughs) so 
that doesn't make any sense to me at all. Why that's, you know, a positive. It's just foreign to me. But here's why I say all that. Because when it's all done, while we appreciated the experience, and we're like, okay, well, we did that. We're never doing that again, more than likely. But I know my wife. I understand my wife. I've watched her. And I knew what we were doing next. We're getting in that little car. We're driving straight to Sonic so that we can get a large Coke. Because we needed to wash that taste out quickly. So maybe next year we could do a tour of a Coca-Cola bottling place, and that would be a, a better joy. But I know how she's wired, and I know. And, and so I mean, we experienced that together, but it's been years of watching my wife. And if I'm honest with you, there are seasons in my marriage that I know I put more attention into the relationship with my spouse than I have in the development of my relationship with my Lord and Savior. And that's wrong. We're to know and to believe and to understand Christ just as we're to know and to believe and to understand our spouse. So, here's the difference. But with Christ, there's a greater bond and relationship. Greater than we could ever have with each other and greater than you can ever experience with your spouse. Because Jesus Christ actually dwells with in us as believers in the person of the Holy Spirit. So we are to live, we are to move, and we are to have our being in Christ as He is in us. And this is the reason why we are called the Bride of Christ. Because the marriage relationship comes the closest to describing the bond that Christ has with us. And so that's the point. Our bond with Christ is so close that when we turn from Him and we turn to the world, it's the equivalent of committing spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery occurs when we turn away from God and we turn to someone or something else. Oh, we must never forget that our Lord gave His life And He died for us. And He has done His part in order to create a relationship with us. And it cost Him greatly. Like, Do you get it? It cost Him greatly. It cost Him great humiliation for Jesus to leave His exalted position in glory so that He could be born and enter into this muck of a world that we're in just to be a servant, to be brutalized, to be ostracized, to be humiliated, to be rejected, to be despised, to be harassed, to be brutalized and executed. And it caused them great humiliation, but it also caused them unbelievable pain. The pain of the cross. The pain of bearing all of the sins of the world. The pain of bearing the wrath of God. Include the pain of having his father turn his back on him. And he did that because he loves us. And he wants us to have a restored relationship with him. He did it all for us. So the question becomes like, how do you respond to that? What do you do with that? 
the only proper thing for us to do is to give our whole lives, every aspect of who we are and what we do, to the control of our Heavenly Father. James confronts his readers by asking the question, do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? They cannot be ignorant of the truth that friendship with the world is the equivalent of having hatred towards God. And friendship, this word is a much richer term in the ancient world than it is for us today. Because it implies a a unity in thought and purpose. To be a friend meant to share everything together. And so the one who is a friend of the world shares uh, its outlook on life and feels very much at home within the evil operating system of the world. And please understand that world has many different meanings in Scripture. For instance, Romans chapter 1, verse number 20, sometimes world refers to creation. There it says, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. That's the physical planet we live on. And the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So sometimes it means creation. Sometimes it means the people that inhabit creation. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So sometimes it means creation. Sometimes it means the people that inhabit creation. And then sometimes it refers to humans organizing themselves apart from God and His holy standards. I think this is best clearly seen in, in the reference from 1 John chapter 2, verse number 16. There it says, for all that is in the world, now it's going to describe the operating system of the world. That is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is not from the Father, but is from the world. So I want to unpack each of those with you real quick, just so that you can be very careful on how you interpret verse number 4. James is not saying that friendship with people in the world is hatred towards God or makes one an enemy of God. What he's saying is that friendship with the evil world system, which lies under the power and the control of Satan, this type of friendship is hatred towards God and makes one an enemy of His. So as believers, and believers who choose to pursue the pleasures of this world, they are inescapably drawn to a friendship with the forces of this worldly system. The problem with that, come on, at least, at the very least, this operating worldly system is indifferent to God, but at worst, it's outright antagonistic towards God. And so many Christians get their pleasures or they desperately chase after the wrong things in life. Chasing after the things that that are actually hostile towards God. So any person who is a friend of this world actually stands against God. You need to sit in that for a moment. If you're a friend of the world, relentlessly chasing after your own personal desires without 
thought to the Word of God or the will of God, then that makes you against God. That makes you an enemy of the Father. And so, an impure person is an enemy of the purity of God. An unholy person is an enemy to the holiness of God. A a deceptive, lying, manipulative person is an enemy to, to the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of God. The, the, the greedy or the stingy or the miser person is an enemy of the character of God that longs to give good and, and, and perfect gifts and He gives so generously and sacrificially. I mean, James' writing suggests to us that we need to be asking some really pertinent questions in our lives. Here we go, church. How do you answer these questions for you? Question number one. Are you better friends with the world or with God? Are you better friends with the world or with God? Question two. What are you pursuing? Are you pursuing after your personal desires, your personal wishes and wants? Or are you relentlessly pursuing the will of God in your life? What are you pursuing? Question three. Are you a friend of God? Or are you His enemy today? Now, let me ask you this. How would God answer those questions about you? What would he say? Our best response, the only appropriate response to the life sacrificing, the life freeing gift that Jesus Christ gives to us is for us to bend the knee in complete submission unto him. That we would love him more than we love anyone else that's including your spouse of 27 years or 57 years that this should be the greatest relationship that you have is the relationship that you're developing with our lord and savior jesus christ i really wanted to go all the way through verse number 10 today but there is no way we're going to get there verse number five is extremely difficult Uh, to interpret and i don't want to get away from this moment right now and so we're going to pick up on verse number five beginning next week if you want to do some research between now and then i highly encourage you to because there are a whole bunch of different ways to interpret verse number five next week i'm going to give you what i believe is the proper interpretation for that verse but in this moment right here and right now the question is who are you friends with the world or God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to love you more than we love anyone or anything else. Help us to desire to strengthen and further develop our relationship with you. In this moment, there are lots of decisions that should be made, sins that should be confessed.
commitments that should be established. And as we move into this time of invitation, Father, I pray that you are so pleased by what you see in us. God, we give you this time. May you accomplish your will in this moment. May you be glorified. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.